Isles Barheads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor that you've bestowed on each one of us in this congregation. Even as far back as eternity passed, Father, you knew that this morning was going to exist. You knew that this lesson was going to exist to build up our souls, to challenge us, to indict us even in our own lives, Father. What a true blessing this is. Truth always makes and sets us free, even when it stings, Father. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your loving kindness. Thank you most of all for loving us and doing what you know is best for us always, even when we don't understand it. Father, thank you for revealing to us the deceitfulness of sin and helping us see and shine light in the corners, the deepest recesses of our souls. Father, thank you for allowing us to judge rightly. We pray for those that can't be with us here this morning. Father, we know that some are not here due to distractions and white noise and the details of life, Father. We know some have legitimate excuses. Whatever the case may be, Father, please may your spirit speak to them loud and clear, Father. Your will be done. We pray for those still lost in this world as well, that they might repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ before it's too late. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on that cross so many years ago to cancel out that debt against us, to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay. Again, the deceitfulness of sin, part five. For over a week now, the Spirit's been beginning our messages with a poignant reminder on the topic of judging. Go to 1 Samuel 16, 7. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. On the topic of judging. <clears throat> Nothing wrong with judging righteously. Uh, we need to, many of us need to throw out that old saying, that thing that gives you that knee-jerk reaction. Don't judge me. Uh, we need to throw that in the garbage. Uh, I'm not judging you if I discern something correctly, if I use the Word of God as my benchmark, and something is wrong or right. You don't have a problem when I judge you rightly, just when I judge you wrongly by the same meter stick, so to speak. First Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. Remember, they were trying to get a king, Saul, and he was very tall uh, and very uh, uh, appealing to human eye. Uh, and height tends to usually bring with it some appearance of strength and power, but uh, that's not the case. Uh, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord... The Lord looks at the heart. Remember, um, David uh, stood in contrast to him, and he wasn't really tall at all. 
uh, as far as we know. So for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And who had a better heart uh, than David? Up here on the board. Nonetheless, the point is up here on the board. We cross the line between righteous and unrighteous judging when we suppose we have the ability to judge someone else's motivation in the absence of admission. Now, if someone says, hey, this is why I did it, you might have something to lean on. Uh, this is why I did it. The, the only thing we're left with in the absence of that is what we are able to see. And even then, there's problems. Therein lies our human limitation. Again, I want to get this out because I think even this was um, or is often most understood. Like, where is the line in the sand on judging? Um, we cross the line between righteous and unrighteous judging when we suppose we have the ability to judge someone else's motivation. That's, when, that's my line in the sand, personally, uh, what I've got out of the Bible. I don't have the right to judge someone's heart, someone's motivation. And so I don't. Um, I can see what's going on, and that I can judge rightly. But I don't have, in the absence of them admitting it to me, I have no idea precisely what's going on in someone's soul, what's going on in someone's heart. And that's all God was saying. We are unable to judge a person's heart. And in the case of kingship, like electing Saul, which demands a good heart for the sake of sound leadership, we have to be very careful how we choose. That's not our primary course of study, so I'll stop there. But nonetheless, the Lord's expression regarding this contradiction between things seen and things unseen is something we see many years later, where Jesus warns us also about our human tendency to give weight to earthy things. And this reminds you of this past week's blog titled, It's the Little Things. That's the title of the blog, It's the Little Things. We have this problem as humans, we um, as Pink would say, we give bulk, we give weight to things that we see. We, we see certain things, like, like Saul was a perfect example. Look how big he is, you know, he must be powerful, he must be a good leader. Wrong. I see the heart, said God. So it's the little things. Um, I don't want to get into that blog because it's very involved. One of the longest I've written in a long time. Um, but again, read it. Uh, I'm not even asking, just, just do it. Take it as a command. I don't even care at this point. Just read it. And like Todd said, he's already read it four times. I think I've read it five times and I wrote it. What does that say? It says there's a lot there. It says there's a lot to learn. It says there's an awful lot that the Spirit's trying to tell you people. Go to John 7.24. John 7.24. There, it's, let me tell you something. I'll tell you this honestly. It's impossible for you to read that blog once and get everything out of it. Impossible. And if that's all you did, I don't know what to tell you. John seven twenty four. If you did a rush job with it, you get what you get. Your life is your own indictment. Your own misery is your own indictment. Is your own judgment. John seven twenty four. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with what? Righteous judgment, Jesus. Sign Jesus. Judge with righteous judgment. That's the key. Here's the principle we need to consider up here on the board. 
on the topic of judging, our flesh is so trained to draw a conclusion from what is seen. Yet the Bible tells us the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 The righteous man shall live by faith. Again, our flesh is so trained to draw conclusions from what is seen. The Bible tells us the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 What I'm thinking about right now is handle the wrath of God, hand the wrath over to God. Have faith that um, even if someone that you're under, and say in terms of leadership, is screwing something up royally, have faith that that person reports to the Lord. Have faith that, that God will take care of it in due time. You don't have to judge somebody. You don't have to pass some punishment down on someone. We live by faith. On Thursday, I asked you to look around in particular at how very complex the God of this world has made life. And then ponder how consistent and stable Jesus Christ is. Look at life and then consider Jesus. Consider your life and consider how simple Jesus lived. You see a disparity? To whatever degree there's disparity, to that degree you have work to do. He has work to do in you, in other words. That's what sanctification is all about, to get us to Him, to make us more Christ-like. What did Jesus live like? It seemed to me His life was uncomplicated. The only complications were from without. Up here on the board, when we start thinking that way, we realize there's no sure footing in view. Nothing in this world has ever assured us Standing directly opposite of this is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 8, uh, 33, uh, excuse me, 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Ask yourselves, what is more complex, the world system or Jesus Christ? It's a fair question. What's more complex, the world system or Jesus Christ? Up here on the board. The world changes so much that the secular proverb stands true. The only constant in this life is change. Jesus Christ never changes. But the world's always changing. That's the constant in the world. In the Bible, we have Jesus Christ. He's the constant. In the world, the constant is change. You can expect it. And just when you get your footing, guess what happens? That rock moves out from underneath you. So you jump to the next rock, and that moves or you jump over here and it's a it's a it's a you know it's frozen ice and you can't get your footing at all. Nothing everything's always changing in this world. It stinks. It's horrible. It's how magazines keep selling. That's why magazines are like a billion dollar industry. Television. What do they keep what think about it. Just think about it. If you stopped seeing if you saw the same commercial for the for a bar of soap or shampoo or whatever for the next 20 years, you'd stop paying attention to it. Right? If fashion never changed, okay, it's long hair. No, it's, I mean, it's short hair. No, the, next year it's long hair. Then it's big blonde hair. Then it's back to the 70s and the 80s where it's this tall in the front. Do you know what I'm saying? And all you people, I got to chase it around. I'm going to spend billions of dollars chasing around uh, fashion. <laughs> Fashion's evil. Haven't you figured it out yet? <laughs> it's evil. That's why I just cling to my 1980s clothes. Let's recycle them. Figure, you know, hold on to them long enough. That's a joke. Right? You don't get that? 
Fashion's a joke. And you all like, like little rabbits. You chase it around. Well, that's not in style anymore. Who cares? You know how good tough skins were back in the day? Chris Fredericks. He's like, oh, yeah, remember those things? With a patch on the knee, right? Hey, why don't you go get some then? Yeah, he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to. It's not, not in style. Because <laughs> even I'd make fun of you, I think. Because it was sick. Right? Why, isn't it, why, doesn't we, why do you girls not wear Jordache jeans anymore? Ch chick. Remember? C-H-I-C? Chick jeans. Why not? Because it's not in style anymore. Why don't you all have your hair this high anymore, huh, Melissa? Uh-huh. Well, you know it. You're my age. You know you had hair this, at least this tall at one point. Why not? Because it's style. It's not in style. She comes in there, you guys are going to look at her funny. Why should that matter? No, I'm making fun just to loosen you up, but... Seriously, that's part of the deceitfulness of sin. That, that stuff actually matters. That something as ridiculous, and you're all laughing, so it must be ridiculous. Something as ridiculous as fashion actually matters. Actually has weight in this world. And if we're that far off on weight, what do you think we do with sin? Something as solemn as sin. Oh, we give weight to all the wrong things. Hmm. Anyways, what we find is that the Bible teaches us that the truth is like this. It, it never changes, but the world changes things all the time and keeps us chasing after the wind, as Solomon would say. And that's part of the, the deceitfulness of sin, that those things actually matter. To God, the truth just is. It has always been and will always be. Up here on the board, John 8.58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus Christ is the great I am. And he is also grace and truth, John 1.17. Conclusion, divine truth is eternal, immutable. <sighs> Thank God. Thank God there's something we can hold on to. Grab that pylon of truth, right? And just hold on. Just hold on. Isn't that wonderful to know? Something out there is stable. If someone ever ponders life itself philosophically and then demands, I want answers. What they are really asking for is the truth and therefore Christ. The truth is simple up here on the board. The great thing about Jesus Christ is that he has all the answers because he is truth incarnate. John 1, 14 to 17. Sin, though, deceives us into believing that Jesus does not have all the answers. Rather, we must consult the world to find them. This is a lie. How am I, what's the big one? How do I become happy? How do I find peace? You know who gives peace. Jesus is the one who promises peace. But what about fashion? Everybody keeps ripping on me because I'm out of fashion. Maybe that's just me. Right? Everybody likes to attack because I'm not in fashion. Should that have anything to do with my peace? Should that bother me at all? Nope. Nope. Not if I depend on his peace. Again, what am I building up to here? 
The series is the deceitfulness with the emphasis on deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Our enemies do not want us to focus our attention on the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Because now we have embarked on a journey of discovery. See, we're not just saying, oh yeah, I see it, personal sin. It's a sin. Yep, that's a sin. That's a sin. We have our list. Remember last week's blog? We have a sin. We have a sin. We have a sin. Um, but what's, what about behind the sin? What about between the sin? Todd and I were just talking about that before class as well. Um, how we can all point to things that are actually even right. Like I, I use the example, if say I give uh, Shawnee a hundred bucks to go, you know, his hire blows out in his car or something like that. And I say, hey, you know what, love you, here's a hundred bucks, go get it fixed on me. Anything wrong with that? No, nothing wrong with that at all. But what if it's like the 75th time I've done that? No, for real. And he's just being arrogant. He keeps running. He keeps going somewhere he shouldn't go. You know, he goes Baharan with his little Jetta and blows his tire out every week, right? And he shouldn't be doing it. And I'm just enabling him. Now, is it bad? You see what I'm saying? Everything has a context. Everything has a context. The, deceitful of, the deceitfulness, the true deceitfulness of sin deals in that area. We all like our little lists. We all like to say, it's not wrong to help my kid. It's not wrong to do this. It's not wrong. And at face value, you know what? You're right. But in context, it's totally wrong. It's totally wrong. Anything wrong with eating an apple? If you see that it's good? No. But what if God says, don't eat that one apple right there? It's totally wrong. Some of you are like, hey, that was in the blog. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Our enemies do not want us to focus our attention on the deceitfulness of sin. Why? Because now we've embarked on a real journey. We're not satisfied with face value stuff. Like most of our enemies, we know they exist, and they know that we know they exist. However, there's a big difference between knowing an enemy exists and discovering their tactics for infiltration and covert operations. I often think about when a president meets with the leader of a hostile country, and they sit across from each other, and you know the cameras are flaring, and they shake hands, and they smile for the cameras. And yet, behind the scenes, both countries are undermining the other one with covert tactics. None of which will be discussed at one of these so-called summit meetings. Again, the issue before us is to discover the deceitfulness of sin. Not sin. Anybody here not know what sin is? Everybody in here knows what sin is. But what about the deceitfulness of it? What about its nature? What about how serpentine it is. It slithers between the lists of personal sins. It slithers even between good things. It can take good things and pervert them. Matthew 4, we talked about this as well. Jeez, Todd, what did we talk about my whole lesson? 
Matthew 4, Satan used Scripture against Jesus Christ. What did Jesus? He said, no, that's wrong. That's totally wrong. It's out of context. Therefore, it's evil. I'm not going to do it. Satan's the perfect example. He can use good things. See, that's what people like to do. Well, there's nothing, I did nothing wrong. I only did this thing. I guess at face value, that's true. I did it in love. Yeah, you did it in love, but you just corrupted somebody. I did this. I did this because I love my kid. I love my whatever. Yeah, but you enabled them. You corrupted them. All the in-between stuff, the context of what you did was wrong. That's the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin lives in the in-betweens. We don't like that approach, though, do we? Because it's visceral. It gets, gets to the core of us. We don't like that. I like, uh, you know, I like just having my little glass jar and throwing, like, marbles in there. Say, see, these are all the sins that I keep my eye on. Each marble represents a sin. And then the spirits come along and go, let me fill that with sand. That's the deceitfulness. Everything in between. We don't like that, though. Hmm. Again, the issue before us is to discover the deceitfulness of sin. Every believer understands that sin exists. However, the very nature of sin, its deceitfulness, precludes us from seeing every tactic it uses to make us stumble. Up here on the board, here's what we've established so far in our series. The futility of the human flesh. We are incapable of beating sin in its own game. The nature of sin is that it is deceptive. This means that its first order of business is to go unidentified. Only the light of the Word is able to illuminate sin, identify it, and then deal with it. And that's why it's so important to do what you're doing right now, to learn the Word of God, to have the lights turned on. So here's where we turn our attention to the practical side of things, at least for the moment. I need you to concentrate. The question is, how does sin go undetected? How does sin? Because some of you might say, ah, if I say you're a sinner, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what about your sin? Well, I did this. I lied today, and I, you know, I cheated, and I did, uh, you know, I gave some, you know, whatever. You have like this little laundry list of things that you do. You know what I'm saying? But what the Spirit's saying is there's a whole lot that's going undetected. So that little list that you depend on, you know, the one that you make a habit of confessing with your little ritual, you know, in prayer, um, is garbage. There might be some meat to it, but the reality is the Spirit's trying to get to some, to the next level, let's say. On Thursday, we read the whole of Matthew 6, which in brief revealed Jesus' own heart on arguably sin's greatest strategy of all. What is that? How does sin go undetected? What's the great strategy? You ready? Not rocket science. You're going to say, oh, yeah, that's true. Call unrighteousness righteousness and vice versa. That's it. Why do you, what have we been learning about definitions? Definitions are everything. Satan loves to change definitions. 
Call unrighteousness righteousness. Call good evil and evil good. Call light darkness and vice versa. Just change everything. Flip them. Call big sins little sins, little sins big sins. And do these things in the name of righteousness, even if they are not. Go to Matthew 6, 1. Matthew 6, verse 1. In other words, play all these little games, like mince the definitions, and then protect those definitions. Don't even allow conversations about your definitions, about your presuppositions to occur in your life. Shut those conversations off before they get any traction. That's how you protect it, and that's how you just keep running with unrighteousness as righteousness, and righteousness as unrighteousness, as unrighteous, you know, the vice versa. Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Jesus repeats this principle multiple times in this passage, as we noted. Ultimately, he takes us to the summary principle. Go to verse 22. Verse 22 Here's the summary principle. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If your definition for what is good is completely perverted, but you think it's not. You've been deceived. That is the deceitfulness of sin. How does sin go undetected? This is how. He's saying it right here. How do you figure it out? You learn the Word of God. You've got to have the lights turned on. That's why religious people remain stuck. Because they never pick up their Bible. They use conjecture and, you know, oh, I feel like, I feel like, Jesus would be this way. I feel like God, you know, loves me so much that X, Y, Z. I feel, no, shut up. It's not about your pathetic, disgusting little feelings. Because God says your thoughts are not your, your, the same as mine, nor your ways. I have to teach you my ways. I have to train you up in the Word of God. That's how I turn the lights on. That's how it goes undetected. That's why we're going to be under attack. We're going to continue to be under attack because the lights are getting turned on, on sin itself. And trust you me, the kingdom of darkness hates it. Hates it. Already taken a few of you out. So let's address the question on the table again. We are studying the deceitfulness of sin. How does sin go undetected? Answer, Matthew 6, 23, when we exchange truth for a lie, light for darkness, good for bad, bitter for sweet, etc. Isaiah 5, 20. Woe to those who call, good, who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for, for bitter. Let me ask you a question. Is it good to give the child you love $100 to get their tire fixed? Yes or no? If I just said that. Yeah, right? Okay, is it good if I've been enabling him his whole life? Oh, there's your answer. You see the difference here? 
That's the difference. It's that simple. What, have, what has the Spirit been saying from this pulpit for years now? Read for context. Life has context. Stop playing your little ridiculous games. Stop saying, but even the Bible says I should love thou na thy neighbor and I should do these things for him or her. The Bible says love. The Bible says, you know, this. The Bible says that. And everything's taken out of context. For what purpose? Usually it's to justify something wrong. But what the Spirit's saying is when you're deceived, you don't even know it's wrong. When you're deceived, you don't even know it's wrong. That's the whole point about the deceitfulness of sin. Your eyes have to be opened. That's what he's been doing so far in five parts in the series. That's why the focus is not on sin. Everybody, nobody has a problem looking at it and saying, oh, that's sinful, this is sinful. obviously, right? It's the deceitfulness that is so elusive. So here we have what Jesus pointed out in Matthew 6. It's related to the impetus for this week's blog also. Apparently the Holy Spirit has a lot to say on this topic of the deceitfulness of sin. Up here on the board. Sin poses as a friend, as something good, even righteous for us. That's what sin does. It ingratiates itself to us. Oh, no, I'm good. This is, no, I really think, I know, I know, I know what your pastor's saying about that fashion thing, you know, but it's good to be in fashion because then you'll have friends and, and people will, like, you know, love you. And, and doesn't God say that, you know, I deserve to be loved? And, you know, isn't that a good thing? Because that's what fashion will do for you. All of a sudden, everybody likes you. Life got easy. Didn't Jesus Christ say, take my yoke? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Isn't that what he meant? <laughs> life needs to be a lot easier because when I'm not in fashion, life gets hard. And the yoke is heavy. Uh, I think you might have your definitions wrong. You see, sin poses as a friend. Someone that can swoop in and relieve you of some kind of suffering, so-called suffering or pain or, you know, this kind of a thing. Something you're calling righteousness. Something you're calling fundamentally good. It's fundamentally good that I'm happy, right? That's why I drink so much. I get happy when I drink. Oh, geez, what happened? Everybody's like, oh. I feel good when I drink, so therefore I drink. God loves me and wants me to be happy, therefore I drink. Wait a minute, there might be something wrong here. There might be something wrong with that thinking. I going to say, it's going out there. I'll throw that out there, food for thought. Nonetheless, sin poses as a friend, as something good, even righteous for us. Psalm 55, 21, Proverbs 5, 3, up here on the board. Pro Psalm 55, 21, His, the enemy's speech, was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. What do you expect out of an enemy? If your enemy runs up to your face and says, I'm going to punch you right now in the face, what are you going to do? You're going to duck or you're going to run away. If they go, oh, nice to meet you, they caught you off guard. Smooth, right? 
Let me get in close. Then I can deliver the blow. The enemy is not stupid. Matter of fact, he's really, really, really smart. As we noted on Thursday, when we read the whole of Proverbs 5, the Bible uses something fundamental, something as pervasive as adultery, as a perfect example of the seductiveness of sin. Side note, I think, I believe I taught a lengthy series on the seductiveness of sin. Um, I just did a cursory look and I didn't find it. It might have been before the gospel reload, but it doesn't matter. The divine illustration of adultery is that a man is seduced by something desirable to his flesh. Something, as we began this morning, that is appealing to our human senses, to our sensibilities even. Something has to be desirable to the human sense, if you would, or even our sensibilities, you know, it makes sense. It makes rational sense. It makes human rational sense that I would do this thing. If we ponder what actually happened in the garden at the fall, this is exactly what the serpent leveraged, human senses and sensibilities. The serpent ingratiated himself to Eve, proposing himself a friend or a, a buddy who was, you know, just trying to help make Eve's life a little better or enjoyable even abandon the truth of the matter, which is God's divine providence is perfect and complete. Abandon that. Hey, I'm your buddy. I'm, I'm saying, we're just rapping. We're just rapping. We're just talking. Look at me. I'm standing here eating it myself. Look at this. I didn't die. See? I've done, all, I've done this sin for years that I'm trying to get you to sin with me. I've done it for years. I'm not dead. God must not think it's that big of a deal. Want to join? Yeah, right? That's the deceitfulness of sin. All of a sudden, we, we have an easier time with it. Hmm. But, like the adulteress, Satan's heart had other plans, covert plans, deceitful plans, Solomon warns us, go to Proverbs 5, verse 3. Proverbs 5, verse 3. And all we're looking at now is the seductiveness of sin. See, there has to be, it's implied that there's some level of deception for seduction to even happen. For someone to be seduced away from something perfect, there has to be something seducing them. Proverbs 5.3, For the lips of the adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. How else is she going to bet a man who is otherwise faithful to his wife of his youth? How else is she going to get him to do that thing? But to get him to depart, to appeal to his senses. Right? To say, look it, look it, this is good. The appeal of the adulteress is to the human senses and sensibilities. That is the pattern in view here. And many a man over the years has postulated that he has the power to, quote, control an adulterous situation. But given enough time, he is always consumed by it. 
to his own demise, just like Solomon warns. Just like the Bible warns us. You cannot contend with that kind of sin. That's wisdom. You cannot. Matter of fact, up here on the board, let's, let's broaden this, let's generalize this, because it's true. You are incapable of controlling sin on your own. You are, do not have the strength. You just don't. Sin wants to deceive you of this very truth. It wants you to think that you actually can control it so that you don't cut it off. Matthew 18, 8-9, but you haven't, you can't, and you never will. You will never be able to control sin on your own. Up here on the board, what did Jesus say? Matthew 18, 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Whatever it is that's causing you to stumble, cut it out. Stop thinking you can dabble. Isn't that what we all do? I'm just going to dabble. I'm just going to have a little taste. <laughs> you don't have that power. The older people laugh because every one of us is so stupid that we just keep doing it. We're like, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, I'm with you, brother. Yeah, in like two hours from now, you're going to be doing that thing. And Jesus is like, if that thing's making you stumble, cut it off. Get rid of it. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Jesus stated that you cannot control the thing that is called sin. Therefore, you must sever ties with it. Sever ties with it. One of the great strategies given to us in the Bible regarding things more powerful than us is to resist them in the first place. In the first place. You know, like, la, 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 it's dark out, right? La, 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 you think it's light, but it's actually dark. La, 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 you fall in a pit. Well, what if the lights get turned on? What if the Word of God says, okay, 10 feet in front of you, boom, floodlights. And right underneath the floodlights is a pit. Are you going to still walk in it? No. You're going to avoid it. You're going to go around it. That's what the Bible does. It just turns the lights on. It says, hey, don't even go near that thing because you're going to fall in. Remember when you thought you were in the light but you were actually in dark and you kept falling in? Remember that? Yeah, well, I just turned the lights on for you. Now you can see it. You don't have to fall in anymore. Yay! Sounds like a good way to live life, I'm just saying. But if you don't take in the Word of God, where do you end up? In the pit every time. So I was reflecting on this, and there is no real order to this other than what the Spirit gave me. If you're addicted to pornography... Maybe it's time you get rid of your computer. I actually know people have done this. How do I know? They've told me. I got to get rid of this thing. This thing is, I got to get rid of it. They literally threw their computer out because they could not overcome their addiction. If you're addicted to a TV series, maybe it's time to get rid of all those cable channels or Netflix or Amazon Video, whatever it is you watch, Who, or whatever the heck you watch. If your lust for approval from fellow man grips you to the core, maybe it's time you reevaluate your lifestyle choices, your job, your financial decisions that keep you locked into that life. 
In general, if you have any kind of ungodly habit, or as the world would call it, disorder, take the steps to cut it out of your life, as Jesus said. Otherwise, sin will continue to control you just as it has for so long. You're too weak. I know you think you're, I know you think you're smarter, and I know you think you're stronger. How do I know that? Because that's me. I think I'm smarter and stronger than my sin, and it, it, I just always fail. If I go near that pit, I'm going in. I, I think of a magnet. It's more like a magnet to me. It's like a continuum. The closer I go to the magnet, the more likely I'm going that way. And then, it, you know, you, if you know anything about physics, the closer you get, the, the stronger the force. Therefore, the acceleration excel, itself increases, and you just go, you know, like... And the wheels fall off, and you're sitting there going, what happened? You know what happened, you jackass. You knew what happened as soon as you felt, you know, when the, you were like this, and your compass went, you know what I'm saying? True north compass, magnetic north. But then there's like this magnet. It's like, and then it's like, next thing you know, you kind of do one of these numbers. Whoop. You're not alone. I mean, I'm just, but I'm not even speaking from experience. I'm speaking from the Bible. This is what the Bible tells us. If something's like that in your life, cut it off. Get rid of that magnet. Somehow get it over there and keep it over there. Because it's not bringing glory to God. That age-old thing, if what you're doing isn't bringing glory to God, then it's wrong. That's the big question you always have to ask yourself before you, you know, when you're on that precipice. Like, I wonder if this is, like, really wrong or not. Is what you're about to do going to bring glory to God? Or not? And you pretty much know the answer at that point. And if you ignore it, sin will continue to control you just as it has all along. So admit to yourself here and now that you are not strong enough to beat sin on your own. And then take action. James 1.22, do not be a hearer who merely deludes themselves, but be a doer. In his book, The Total Depravity of Man, A.W. Pink describes the allure of sin and that we ought to resist even approaching an area of weakness in our lives where sin has trodden so many times before. I mean, we, we see our own footprints over there, for crying out loud. Right? We see the remnants. That's why we have a memory. Just because we confess a sin doesn't mean we forget it, right? We see the remnants and we look. There's like 100,000 steps over there and they're all mine. Don't even go over there, because you know the end result. Up here on the board, the total depravity of man. We are expressly told that there is no lion in the way of holiness, that no ravenous beast shall be found there, Isaiah 35, 8-9. No, we have to step out of that way and trespass on the devil's territory before he can gain an advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. That is why we are so emphatically enjoined, enter not into the path of the wicked, and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Pass not by it. Turn from it. Don't even go near it. Proverbs 4, 14 to 15, Pink uses even the fall in the garden to make his case appear in the board. We certainly do not regard Eve as being guilty of any sin at this initial stage, 
but the sequel shows plainly that she incurred great danger and exposed herself to temptation by approaching so near to that tree whose fruit had been divinely prohibited. In other words, why'd you even go over there, Eve? Why'd you even go over there in the first place? If God says, just don't eat from that one, then why are you even going near it? If God says, don't do this thing in your life, why even go near it? I always get a kick out of those people like on YouTube. They go to the zoos, and there's like a fence line like from here to that wall away because it's like a bear or a lion. And they're like taking selfies, and then they fall into the moat, and they get eaten, and they're like, what happened? Oh, it's the lion shot. Let's, let's shoot the lion. Like, why are you even doing that? That's there for your protection. Why'd you get that close to the cage? Why'd you have to do take a selfie and fall in and get eaten? You're laughing, but that's you. Up here on the board, and we need not be surprised to discover, as she, Eve, also did, that that ground was already occupied by the serpent. This has been recorded for our learning and warning. Here's as far as we got on Thursday in our series up here on the board. Playing with fire... Sin deceives us into thinking that we can play with fire and not get burned. The truth is that eventually, given the superior nature of fire, we get burned. We sin. The best strategy then is to avoid it. Back away. Resist it. Don't play with matches. Don't play with matches because you're going to probably burn the house down. You're going to burn something down. I did. Right? You get bored. Next thing you know, you're lighting your hand on fire. I did that. Yeah. Stick your hand in lacquer thinner, light your hand on fire. Whee! Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Go to Ephesians 6.13. We shouldn't even tempt ourselves like that. Ephesians 6.13 Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. What do you think you're doing? That's the word of God. Take it up. Put on the full armor of God. Resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Go to James 4.7. James 4, verse 7. I think this is the last verse from Thursday. And we're going to trudge on. James 4, verse 7. <clears throat> James 4, 7 reads, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. How about 1 Peter 5, 8? Go to 1 Peter 5, 8. First Peter 5, verse 8. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. You know, like, don't be drunk, don't be intoxicated by the world system because you can't make good decisions at that point. You know, if you've ever been drunk, you get the spins, you don't know. It's why you're walking, you're bouncing off of walls. That's no different than thinking light is darkness and darkness is light. 
You think left is right and right is left. Why? Because you get the spins. You're intoxicated. You're all messed up. All right? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You see the word resist there being emphasized. All three passages, resist him, resist the temptation. Don't even play with fire. Don't even pick up the matches. Resist it. Don't go near the, na- the matches. If you can't trust yourself, don't even go near the matches. We have to have our eyes open to the deceitfulness of sin, my friends. Up here on the board, Acts 26, 18. Jesus appeared to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. We need to have our eyes opened. As we noted on Tuesday up here on the board, we mustn't underestimate the power and pervasiveness of sin, lest we be deceived by it. A list is not enough. All you ex-religious people with your little lists... It's not enough. That's not what the Spirit's talking about. God is not interested in your lists. What, where's your heart at? Like the blog said, are you obedient from the heart or are you just obedient to some list? Well, at least I haven't murdered anyone. At least I'm not an adulterer. At least I haven't cheated on my taxes. Whatever, I don't know, whatever these crazy sins you've got. At least I didn't do this. You're a jackass. Your judging alone is worse. That's why lists don't work. Lists, fulfilling a list is the result of a heart. A list doesn't prove one, so to speak. I'm talking about within your own soul, how you think about sin. If you just want to pigeonhole sin into a list of don't do this, don't do that, you're missing the whole point of this series, and I hope you catch up soon. That in of itself, that error that I just described, is part of the deceitfulness of sin. Because sin doesn't want to be exposed beyond a mere list of personal sins. doesn't want you thinking about it, that it has a nature and a character and an inherent evil to it. Doesn't want you to think about it that way, the way that the Bible describes it. Wants you to think about sin religiously. We mustn't underestimate the power and pervasiveness of sin lest we be deceived by it. Again, the true emphasis of this series is on deceitfulness. Not necessarily the definition of sin, although we've been dealing with it. So with that said, let's shore up some final thoughts from this past week. Um, On the topic of judging, again, we received some fantastic wisdom, including the following. Again, we're talking about the practical side here. What what does the deceitfulness of sin even look like? Look at Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you, past judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge 
practice the same things. What did we learn on that? Up here on the board. Paul wasn't saying that judging was wrong. He was simply pointing out that if his audience were to judge rightly, they'd have to judge themselves rightly in integrity. In context, there it is, this would be an indictment since they were practicing the same things they were judging others for. This is a perfect example of the deceitfulness of sin. The way people judge nowadays. Why do you think that came up like three, four times now? It wasn't just some disjoint thing. It was because it's the way people think about judging even is married to the deceitfulness of sin. People are deceived about the topic of judging even. Therefore, they're, they're like, it's, it's politically incorrect to judge in any way, shape, or form so anything goes. Right? Or they're just judging the hell out of everybody and everything goes. Because they're religious. People are screwed up. It's a perfect example of the deceitfulness of sin. Judging. It thinks it's righteous in judging others, while all along it is worse than the others, being self-preserving and therefore hypocritical. We read Romans 2, 1 through 8. Here was the conclusion from that up here in the board. The point Paul is making is that his audience was hypocritical rightly judging others while refusing to judge themselves by the same standard, the one that God uses impartially for all. Now, before we move on, we need to review three key working definitions up here on the board. The simple definition for sin. Sin is any lack of conformity to God's will, whether expressed actively or passively. Just, here's God's will. If you're disjoint from what he wants, it's a sin. That's the quickest, easiest way to think about sin. Any lack of conformity to God's will. Does God want you entitling your children? Nope. Guess that's a sin then, huh? But I only gave him 100 bucks. Yeah, you gave him 75 times 100 bucks. You get what I'm getting at here? That's the will of God. God doesn't want you uh, destroying people's lives and then calling it good. Right? The total depravity of man comes into view, describes the pervasive corruption and pollution of sin passed down from Adam. Its effects are devastating to man. Depravity born of sin up here on the board. Number one, affects every aspect of man. Number two, renders every man unable to please God. Number three, is universal, affecting every man ever born. So you see the, the nature of the depravity of man, the pervasiveness of sin itself. In many ways, sin is analogous to a disease up here on the board. The disease of sin. Sin deceives us into thinking that we have a simple cough when we have lung cancer. That sin itself is merely a once-in-a-while result when it is ever-present. If we buy this lie, we surrender to sin's mastership, to shuka, because that's what sin wants, to dominate you. Funniest thing, isn't it, how that works. In our ignorance, we're dominated. Sin deceives us into thinking that we have a simple cough when we have lung cancer, that sin itself is merely a once-in-a-while result when it is ever present, 
If we buy this lie, we surrender to sin's mastership. Oh, there is a way out. It's called the light. There's only one light. That's Jesus Christ, who is also called, you ready? The Word. You want a way out of the deceitfulness of sin? Here's your answer. There is literally no other way. No other way. I don't care how much you feel. How much you feel something is right. If God says it's wrong, then it's a sin. If it's disjoint with God's will, then it is a sin. Period. That's it. That's it. And if you refuse that truth, then sin is mastering you. Because now it's got control over you. Because you're running with sin instead of with God. And now it's controlling you. You're like, yeah, but you know what, guys? It's my kids. Or it's, you know, it's someone I love. So I'm always going to make this exception in partiality for someone that I care deeply about. Well, you're sinning. Because God's impartial to boot. So it's just, if anything, you should be all the more, more, you know, of a stickler in a way. If you really love a person, you don't want to hurt another person, do you? No. But what hurt, by definition, what hurts us? Anything opposed to God's will. I know, it's, it's just a web. It's just, it lies alike that. This is the nature of the way sin has lied to us. It's this big web. I'm like, this is unbelievable. It's like everywhere. It's everywhere. You know, like when you go through a web in the woods, and it's like, or cobwebs, you know, like in the house. It's like, what? How? Why do those things like stick to you? It's like everywhere. It's like that. It's like, man, this is crazy. It's like, get, once it's on you, it's on you. Or axle grease. Everybody's like, seriously, dude? If we buy this lie, we surrender to sin's mastership. So, I ask you to think about sin this way, not just in the way that religion may have taught you in the past. Not the way religion may have taught you in the past. Religion loves to focus on, you see, a short list. You know, like Ten Commandments or something. Religion loves to focus on a list of sins. Don't do these big sins and you will be good. Read the blog. That's what religion loves to do. Because you've basically undermined. You've, shined, you've, you've taken the light out of the equation. Up here on the board. If we only think of sin in a limited way, we actually miss the mark. And, by definition, we are sinning. If we only think of sin in a limited way, we actually miss the mark. In other words, we have to understand what sin is. If we don't, we miss the mark. If we refuse the truth, say that's coming from this pulpit this morning, then you are on purpose missing the mark. Because you're, who knows what, in self-preservation mode, you kind of like your life the way it is, you kind of like the little skeletons in the closet and the little areas of partiality in your life. And you kind of want God to keep those things untouched for now. Well, you're missing the mark. Therefore, you're sinning. 
Satan, the father of lies, wants nothing more than for you to, quote, miss the mark on what this series is teaching you. In terms of relative importance, this series is right up there with the Gospel Reload series. It's not the Gospel Reload. Nothing will ever be the capstone on that. That is our foundation. But this series, honestly, in terms of relative importance, is right up next to it. Right up next to it. We have a serious stumbling block. And it is not merely comprised of personal sins. And I hope you know what I mean by that. Theologically, personal sins just means, you know, I lied. There's like something you proactively did and there was a result, you know, gave birth. We're not just talking about that. Nobody in here, I don't think at this juncture of the game, doesn't understand what a personal sin is. Is it a sin? You bet. But that's not the complete nature of sin. Sin's elusiveness depends upon our making an error with this. Sin takes into account all of God's will. You ready? Sin, by definition, takes into account all of God's will, including lifestyles and individual contexts. Let me say it again. Sin, by definition, takes into account all of God's will, including lifestyles. In individual context. In other words, it's that old, that's the question I alluded to earlier. Is what you're about to do going to bring glory to God? Is God going to be pleased with what you're about to do or say or even dwell on? Because the Bible says dwell on these things, whatever is pure, whatever is good, you know. If you're just going to sit there, shut your TV off, shut everything off, and dwell about, I don't know, something ungodly. You choose. I don't even want to know what's going on in your heads. You choose what the ungodly thing is. Shut all lights off, I'm just going to dwell on it. That's sin. That's you entertaining, doing something. Instead of doing that, maybe you should be praying. Instead of thinking about something unholy or how you're going to do the next unholy, ungodly thing in your life, maybe you should ask God, what should I be doing here? Is your lifestyle a light on a hill? If, if, if you are a little bit more transparent, let's say, God forbid, if you are a little bit more transparent, would you be bringing glory to God? In other words, if every, if every, if your lifestyle, if your normal mode of thinking was to be brought to light for everyone else to see, what would people think about that? I mean, godly people with the Word of God. What would the Word of God say about your lifestyle? Not talking about you made these twelve things and put them over there, and you haven't done, you haven't killed anybody. You haven't done this. You haven't done that. You haven't, you haven't done these things. Yeah, but what about your lifestyle? What about within the context of your life? But what I do isn't wrong. I did nothing wrong. Yeah, maybe that person is not wrong for them, but for you it's wrong. Maybe there's a person that you know. You ready for this? This is a big one. Maybe there's a person you know who can walk right up to that tree over there and never stumble. 
But if you get within 50 feet of it, you're in that magnet zone, and you are going to go down, and you're going to fall hard every single time. So don't sit here and say there's nothing wrong with that tree, because really there might not be. But for you, there's everything wrong. Right? And God in life itself has, has, has proven it to you over the years. Every time you go near that tree, guess what happens? You fall flat on your face. Ah, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? The same thing that happened. We see all those footprints over there? Those are yours. You see the, all those face plants? <laughs> the outline of your face in the ground? That's your face. Because every time you go there, you fall flat on your face. So what are you doing? But so-and-so can stand right next. They're having a little tea party over there. Yeah, right. But that's not for you. You weren't invited. You go over to this tree. And then you can see all their faces planted in the ground over there. What about your lifestyle? What about the context of your life? Elevate our thinking way up now, and then I've got to pick a spot to close because we're pretty much out of time. God versus Satan. God is the embodiment of righteous conformity to himself. He's never been out of whack with himself, okay? He's in perfect bliss, perfect peace, perfect love, perfect righteousness, perfect integrity. He's never been out of kilter. He just is. He's absolute. He's immutable. That's why we use the word immutable. He doesn't change. And whatever good is from him. So in other words, he's got the whole market cornered on anything good. Anything that's not good, everything else that's not good falls outside of him, his essence. So God is the embodiment of righteous conformity to himself. When he calls man to himself, he is calling them to, his fellow, to this fellowship. In other words, join me. Orient, join me. I'm going to sanctify you. We're going to spend eternity together. Satan is the embodiment of sin because he exists as the embodiment of all that is opposed to the holy God of the universe. Let me ask you a question. Um, Is walking around on this earth, is there anything wrong with that? I mean, Satan might say, what'd I do? I was just over there. I just happened to be standing over near the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I happened to be slithering over there. What'd I do? Anything wrong with that at face value? No. But if your intention is to stumble, or if you know that when two things collide, there's going to be a problem, and the whole human race is going to fall, there's a problem. Right? That's the difference. That's what we're getting at here in the series. I don't want you to willingly or unwillingly make the mistake of dis- of misplacing or misappropriating what's coming from this pulpit. I don't want you to run with that old religious tact that you have for years. You know the one that's protected you? You remember the one that's kept sort of that lifestyle that you're living sort of in check? You remember that, you know, that religious tact? The one that says, but I have this list of, of sins. And, I, you know, on the grand scheme of things, I used to do all of them, and now I'm down to 50%. Hey, good for you. Right? There's probably some reaping and sowing there. You're probably less tortured. I don't know. I don't know. Whatever those things do in your life, I don't know. 
But that's not what we're getting at. We're talking about the deceitfulness of sin, the very nature of sin, your proclivity for it, your, your desire for it, your, when, when, when sin's around you, when, when you go to that tree and, and it represents falling, and you go anyways. And you've gone where, as, as Pick would say, where Satan is trodden down already. And he's waiting for you, faithfully, so that you'll have yet another sin to point to. Sin in the second definition. I don't want you to make that mistake. I know that's the convenient one, though. You know that's the convenient one. It's a heck of a lot easier to point to some list and say, at least I'm not doing that anymore, at least I'm not doing this anymore, at least I'm not doing that anymore. Is that goodness? Sure. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about the nature of sin itself, the deceitfulness of it. That's as good as I can do right now, honestly. That's why this series is going to probably take a little while. It's because, um, like someone wrote to me after the blog, um, this, is, these, this kind of thinking requires a lot of um, pondering. Like you have to take what's coming from this pulpit, what you see in Holy Scripture, and you really have to ponder it and say, what is, really, what is the Spirit really saying? Only you can answer that. And if you're earnest and you, you seek Him diligently, if you knock, He'll open. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much once again for this tremendous privilege of gathering together as family, for always feeding us meals that just fill our bellies, Father. Give us things to go home with and dwell on. Father, we know that You love us and You're just trying to sanctify us, so even though... Some of these things might be painful to us. It's a good thing. Father, we know you are good intrinsically. And we know that you always have our best interests at heart. Father, we just ask that when we take the things we've learned out to a lost and dying world this afternoon, that we're fruitful and that goodness be multiplied. Father, we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.